Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is episode three in our Murder at Lake Waco series. A trigger warning for our listeners. This series contains gruesome depictions of murders and mentions of sexual assault. We advise proceeding with caution. Gail Kelly was no fan of policemen, but she was less a fan of Lucky Deeb, her former employer, who had just admitted to killing Kenneth Franks, Jill Montgomery, and Raylene Rice in the wooded area around Lake Waco. Though he brushed it off as a joke, Gail didn't believe him. She saw the look in his eyes and knew she was looking at a killer. That night, she got home and phoned Truman Simmons, telling him how Deeb knew details he had no business knowing and how the bank was about to foreclose on his shop so he was soon going to leave Texas. Simmons knew the man, or at least knew of him. Midnight shifts would often bring Simmons to the Skaggs supermarket, where he joined his friend Willie Tompkins for a cup of coffee. Willie, a former policeman, now a Baptist minister, moonlighted as a night security guard to make ends meet. Despite that change in profession, Willie's love for police work still lingered, and Simmons always hoped he'd return someday. On one such visit, sipping a coffee in the early hours of the morning, Simmons met Munir Mohammed Deeb, who had come to the shop with two young women, Casey and Carrie Rowe. Tompkins nudged Simmons' shoulder and prompted him to look at the young crowd that had just walked in. You gotta watch this, he said. They're taking that poor little guy for every dime he's got. Just watch. They'll fill those carts up with all kinds of groceries. Then he'll pick up the tab. Does it all the time. And he ain't getting much in return. Sure enough, moments later, Dee was picking the tab for their groceries. Topkins and the cashier were both trying to talk to him about it. But it was useless. He was in love with Casey, and he would give her anything she wanted. Simmons couldn't help but shake his head as he watched the woman push the cart. As days went on, Dee began to join Simmons and Tompkins in their talks. Simmons was fascinated by Eastern philosophies, and they had several discussions about customs, traditions, and Deeb's home. Manir Deeb, however, would always pull the conversation back to money and how he had plans to make money in America, becoming more than just a grocery store and expanding into a chain. 
One of the plans he had for his store was to install a video game room. Tompkins helped him out, and they purchased three games together, agreeing to split the profits down the middle. Tompkins viewed Deeb as a reckless spendthrift with a weakness for women, but he appeared to be a man of his word. He was a dedicated, passionate, and honest man, and he always paid his dues. And who among us does not have a weakness? This image, however, turned sour the September morning Truman Simmons and Dennis Bayer showed up at Deeb's store to bring him in for questioning. Manir Deeb's reaction to Kenneth's death was rather odd, almost cold and uncaring. Even if it couldn't be counted as a key piece of evidence, it was worth noting for Simmons. As Deeb said across the detectives, denying everything and claiming innocence, a thought occurred to Simmons. Deeb was rather slender, and he had a slight limp. There was no way he could have executed three horrific murders in one location and dragged all the bodies to a second location all by himself. Speaking to Lisa Cater again, though, Simmons got two more names. According to her, anything involving Deeb always also involved David Spence, who was also known to be the brawn that executed grisly plans. Spence, it turns out, had always been a troublemaker. When his name was floated into the investigation, Simmons found he was already in jail for another incident, and he was arrested just a few days after the Lake Waco murders. It wouldn't be hard to place him there, especially given how Spence and his friend Gilbert Melendez were being accused of sexually assaulting a teenage boy, cutting his leg open with a knife, and forcing him to perform oral sex. And as the two awaited their day in court, whispers of their association with the mysterious incident at Spiegelville Park reached fever pitch. Spence, a burly man with a scruffy beard and a menacing aura, was known to be a bully. The emblem of a Harley-Davidson wing, inked on his left arm, spoke volumes of his rebellious spirit. Meanwhile, Melendez, a man of Hispanic descent with long, straight hair, was no stranger to defying authority. Together, these two were a dangerous combination, and as words of their involvement in the Lake Waco murder spread, it seemed that anything was possible. Many who knew them well wouldn't have put it past them to commit even murder. It looked like they were really on to something. Simmons even spoke with the mothers and aunts of the victims and told them his theory. The actual target was Gail Kelly. But because Jill looked so much like Gail, the killer made a mistake. As investigations went on, Simmons found another motive. Perhaps not a bigger one but certainly one that would solve all of Deeb's financial problems. He had taken out a $20,000 life insurance policy on Gail, posing as her common-law husband. It felt like Simmons knew everything, but he just wasn't allowed to put the pieces together. He had to lay a trap of some sort. 
while his colleagues dealt with the investigation attached to Munir Deeb, Simmons did something quite unconventional. Taking a significant cut in pay and status, he transferred to the county jail to become a jailer and get close to David Spence. At that moment in the county jail, rumors had spread that Spence was bragging to his cellmates about committing the murders and claiming to have taken out the wrong Gale. Days later, Simmons arrived. He knew Spence's type all too well. The rough and tough guy, who thinks he's got it all figured out behind bars, strutting down the prison halls like he owns the place, flaunting his crimes and bravado to establish dominance. But underneath the rough exterior, there was a sense of unease and sadness lurking. Sure enough, Spence had dropped out of middle school and turned to drugs, alcohol, and marijuana to ease his boredom. He got married young, became a father of two, and was divorced by the time he was 20. At 21, he committed a robbery with a hatchet, landing him in prison for 15 months. During his time behind bars, he became enamored with the biker lifestyle and adorned himself with tattoos, including dice on his right arm and Harley wings on his left. Despite his growing reputation for violence and unpredictability, Spence was feeling the sting of solitude and jail. And that's what Truman Simmons capitalized on. The midnight shift at the Waco County Jail was where Simmons first crossed paths with Spence. An inmate with a taste for the macabre, Spence was always eager to discuss the infamous Lake Waco murder case. Most nights, as Simmons would listen to his stories, the hours would slip by. Before they knew it, the first hints of dawn would be creeping over the horizon. Despite repeated warnings from his lawyer, Walter Reeves, Spence was drawn to Simmons' silent understanding, and the two men quickly became friends. It wasn't long before Simmons realized the dangerous game he was playing, because Spence was no ordinary criminal, but a suspect in the very case he was investigating. If he caught on, it could get ugly. In our ongoing journey dissecting real-life mysteries, I've found a perfect companion in a game that not only captivates, but also lets me step into the shoes of a detective in the glamorous 1920s, June's Journey. As someone who's delved deep into the game, playing through the intriguing scenarios of June Parker, I can personally vouch for its immersive experience. In June's Journey, you unravel the mystery of June Parker's sister's murder. Each scene is a visual and intellectual puzzle, with hidden clues scattered across beautifully crafted locations. What I've enjoyed most is the depths of the storyline. Each chapter peels back a layer of this thrilling narrative, revealing danger, mystery, and romance. Besides the allure of solving mysteries, the game lets you design and customize your own luxurious estate island. Building my estate has been a delightful escape, offering a creative break from the intense narratives we tackle on the podcast. For those of you who enjoy the blend of history, mystery, and narrative depth we explore on this podcast, June's Journey offers a chance to live out those elements in a beautifully interactive setting. June needs your help, detective. 
Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android, and join me in this ongoing quest to uncover hidden truths and solve complex mysteries. Attention friends, are you ready to embark on a journey into the unknown this Mother's Day? Prepare to dive into the depths of your family's history with mylifeinabook.com. Each week, mylifeinabook.com sends intriguing questions, uncovering the thrilling tales of your mom's past, and then she can either type her response or use their voice-to-text feature. From daring escapes to nail-biting encounters, her life becomes an epic adventure waiting to be explored. This Mother's Day, give the gift of excitement and intrigue with mylifeinabook.com. It's a thrilling ride through your mom's life that you won't want to miss. I gave this to my mom last year, and let's just say I didn't know my mom as well as I thought I did. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code SHANE at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code SHANE for 10% off today. Except, it didn't. Spence was only hurt. As a lonely inmate who didn't have a friend in the world, he allowed himself to believe Truman was becoming a real friend. Still, he couldn't resist Simmons' silent presence and understanding. So they continued to share conversations about life, love, and spirituality. The many times they would discuss the murder at Lake Waco, Spence would, of course, claim innocence. As days passed, however, Simmons delved deeper and deeper into the case. Talking to other inmates and making secret visits to the jail outside of work hours. At this point, the investigation back home in Waco was hitting a wall. Deep's family had hired a lawyer and demanded a polygraph test. And after three grueling hours, the operator announced the results. Deeb was telling the truth. This news sent Simmons spiraling into a state of disbelief and defeat. But he was steadfast. It couldn't have been anyone else. It made no sense. Simmons was determined to prove the test wrong. He refused to give up on his theory that Deeb was involved. Returning to the county jail, Simmons began asking around. He was quickly spending less time with Spence and more time with all the other inmates. Soon enough, tongues started to wag. Inmate Kevin Michael let loose the dark secrets that Spence had boasted about, confessing to the brutal murder of the three innocent teenagers. Michael's story was confirmed by other prisoners, who spoke of Spence's involvement in a satanic cult and of being paid by some foreigner named Lucky to carry out a few murders, but how he had the wrong girl. Things were going his way, but Spence's hearing was also coming up soon. Vic Fiesel, the new district attorney of Waco, was a man with a fire in his belly 
in a fierce determination to bring justice to the city. Raised as a Baptist preacher's son, Fiesel's passion for justice was matched only by his unwavering faith. He was a man of action, and his first trial as lead prosecutor was to be none other than Spence's own case for aggravated sexual abuse against a teenage boy. Truman only had stories so far. Now he needed to leverage what he knew to get a confession. Except Spence and Melendez's trial had already begun, and the jury found them guilty. Spence received a hefty sentence of 90 years, while Melendez was only given seven. So now, Simmons shifted his focus to Gilbert Melendez. When Simmons told him Spence was willing to talk in order to get a lighter sentence, Melendez sang like a bird. He recounted how he and Spence had encountered the trio of teenagers at Coney Park on a July 13th evening, armed with alcohol and marijuana. They invited the teenagers to a secluded location and drove them to Spiegelville. In the car, the girls and their male friend started to feel uneasy, but it was too late when they asked to return to Coney. That's when Melendez pulled out his knife and proceeded to inflict hours of rape, torture, and murder. It was a huge confession. Simmons needed a minute to process hearing these words, but it seemed like he had opened a can of worms now. Melendez proceeded to talk about how his brother Tony had witnessed the entire thing and even helped cover the evidence, in addition to adding other details of the crime. Armed with Melendez's signed confession, Simmons stormed into Spence's cell and gave him one last chance to come clean. Knowing he was cornered, Spence also broke down and confessed his involvement in the murders. He claimed he had been hired by Manir Deeb to take out the woman who had forever tormented him, Gail Kelly. Not only would she never reject him again, but he'd get the $20,000 from her life insurance that could save his store. Spence was promised $5,000 in return, and he recruited the Melendez brothers to help him carry out the job. What they didn't realize, though, was that Gail was a lookalike. And that was it. Simmons found everything he was looking for. They were now coming up to a year since the murders, better late than never. Simmons took the statements back to Waco and poured over them one more time to tie up any loose ends, which would prove difficult because he actually noticed a few inconsistencies in Melendez's story. Chalk it up to years of drug and drinking or bald-faced lying. The statement was unusable. When he asked for details of Spence's car, for example, Melinda said it was a station wagon, but Spence hadn't purchased his station wagon until two weeks after the murders. In fact, over the course of two days, Melendez gave three different statements, including other discrepancies, like different times for when he and Spence arrived at the park. Once again, Truman Simmons 
felt like he was back to square one. But then, an unexpected visit from Assistant DA, Ned Butler, brought with it the promise of a breakthrough. Butler was a firm believer in forensic odontology, the study of bite marks, and he had used it before to help solve a murder in Amarillo. When he saw the leaked murder files, he immediately asked if the bodies had been checked for bite marks. Studying the autopsy photos himself, Butler determined that several wounds on the girls' bodies looked as if they could have been made by human teeth. He had a mold made of Spence's teeth and delivered them to forensic odontologist Homer Campbell in Albuquerque. The news he received was remarkable. Campbell was certain that Spence's teeth had made the marks. Finally, Simmons had the confirmation he had long suspected. The task force gathered momentum, and witnesses came forward with suspicious things that Spence had said. And the investigators had another suspect, Tony Melendez, Gilbert's younger brother. Over the next few weeks, an emotional trial would follow, with the parents of the victims reliving that horrible night through the mind of the killer. Needless to say, the criminal trial for the murders at Lake Waco was the most anticipated event in the town's history. Just the run-up was contentious, with Spence's lawyers, Russ Hunt and Hayes Fuller, convinced their client was being railroaded and fighting against Ned Butler's forensic odontology results. In our final episode in the series, we will look at the court proceedings and uncover shocking new details about the murders, with one key suspect going free and another surprisingly pleading guilty. The trial was one to remember for the people of Waco, Texas. Thanks for listening. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.